Dead Bodies is not for the squeamish and is intended for mature audiences. I've been getting trolled a lot on Twitter lately. Oh. Yeah, and I've been really opinionated about things and I've just started hitting back with no fucks. Okay. And I haven't been pulled up by my uh, employer yet. I'm waiting for it to happen, but I haven't yet. Right. I'm kind of nice about it. I don't swear at people. Um, But we have had the kind of feedback I like. What's that? So I'm happy to be criticised or told I'm wrong. Yes, if you're wrong. Yes, and I don't yep. I don't like to mute people or block people on social media because they have an opinion that's different to mine. Because I think as a journalist, you must accept all opinions and you must hear all it's very different rational of views. You. Yes. I take I thought, great joy by mute of in muting people because oh, no. I think they're there yelling at me no. and I don't hear they're, they're invisible to me now. I'm fine about it. The other day I spelt rap sheet wrong. Yeah, oh, is my, my I was, chair's going down. Yeah. I don't know what's happening. It's, I'm lowering. It's putting you to your – it's the gods saying I, I am the host of this podcast <laughs> and you must sit lower than me. I quite like this now. It's um, very relaxing and low. Yeah, so I spelt rap sheet wrong. I was in a hurry. Did you put a W on it? Yes, mm. but it auto-corrected. I hate it when people anyway. – you know the word wrapped? Yeah, oh, yeah. I'm wrapped with that. People think it's W R A, and it's not. It's R A P T, short for rapture. So it autocorrected, right. right? Oh, okay. And some sure person sure wrote back and was like, "Oh, I couldn't live with myself if I spelt it like that." <sighs> and so I wrote back, "I choose life." So I've deleted the tweet for you. Oh, nice. You know, like <laughs> yeah. just, yeah. just DM me and tell me that. Yeah. Hey, you spelt rap wrong. Yeah. I'm not a fucking idiot. Yeah. Like, yeah. Just people are twats. Anyway, um, Kim has written to us, oh. and it's the exact kind of feedback I like. I've done something wrong, yeah. and she's pleasantly corrected it. There are emojis oh, nice. and love hearts. Oh, well, I'll take that. Yeah. Hello, gorgeous ladies. Nice things, nice things. It's a it good was, opening. Yeah, yeah. Right? It was the saddest episode with no waffle and no interruptions. She's talking yeah, about episode sad. 73. It was, that was sad. I know. Dee Dee even had to interrupt herself because she was so lonely and there's crying face emoji. (laughs) Anywho, the word Chanel struggled with, I still can't say it, Munchausen's? Got it. Was corrected by Dee Dee and pronounced correctly (laughs) but used in the wrong way. Oh, me too. If I don't, oh no. Yeah, she's clipped me and clipped you on the way through. I'm copping a backhander to the back of the head. Yes, a person with the above syndrome will make themselves ill in order to get attention. Uh, Kelly Gant did not do this. She made her daughter ill to the point of death. This is called Munchausen's by proxy. Correct. Thank you, Kim. You're quite right. As the victim was her child, it is where the perpetrator makes a loved one, usually a child, ill in order to get attention. Just thought I'd clear that up. Love you both and keep up the waffle, Kim. Oh, thanks, Kim. I'm so happy to get – that's fine. That's fine. I'm not perfect at shit. It's reasonable and I think the love heart emoji was like – Balanced yeah. everything out and so finished people it always off beautifully. Me, oh, the shame! You're a court reporter and you've got something wrong. Oh, well, you know what, mate? I fucked up things my whole life. Mm. Yes. By the way, I've lost us a podcast listener. I think. sorry. Well, 
Did you one. see the man on Twitter who oh, tweeted I know, but to he you might and to me this. together? Do we want to go here? Yeah, okay. we do. Sure. Because I've muted him, so I don't know if he's still yelling at me on Twitter. I know. So, so someone tweeted <laughs> me, I can't be and with it him. was it was a whole lot of stuff going on in my life at that point. I was busy. I had shit going on. Anyway, I saw Didi rip back with this tweet, and then I t- texted Didi and I said. What is that fucker talking about? <laughs> Nothing else. Just what is that fucker talking about? So oh. said fucker, if you're listening, that's well, why I texted. No, he just wouldn't stop. So he was telling Chanel not to change her name, which was discussed on a previous podcast some weeks ago. Yes. Um, but he was telling her what to do. Yes. And I just said, mate, said the man telling yes. the woman what to do. He was saying, oh, it's the patriarchy. Don't change mm. your name, Chanel. But, but in and then I was going to get involved. He was telling you what to do. No, you yes. don't need no, to. No, I was going to get involved. Then I got distracted. I've got texts from last week that I haven't even replied back to. I just had all this shit going on. Oh, he then came just... back at me again. I said, mate, you're destroying your own argument. You're telling two grown women what we should think and how we should behave, that we shouldn't perpetuate this. Don't tell us what to do. Oh, my buddy. brain couldn't deal anyway. Yeah. He's gone. Just and he be, doesn't follow me. He must follow you. Oh, Ma, well. Just be nice to me. Mm. Just be nice. Well, anyway, he's probably he's hung up on our podcast now, which oh. is a shame. Because this is going to be the best episode ever. So oh. I'm really sorry. Can I tell you about the best tweet I ever received? I think yes. I tweeted about it. You might even know about it. No, tell so, me. So... Whenever I tweet about George Pell, people lose their shit. Right. Right? People lose it. For those uh, not in the country, he is uh, Australia's highest Catholic, found guilty of sexual, uh, just sexually abusing boys. Anyway, people are very, it's polarising. Yes. So I get lots of tweets and we were at the High Court, which I told everyone we were in Canberra and I was all over the place, and none of the journos really understood the High Court situation because yeah. it's very difficult. We don't go to high court often. Yeah. Anyway, so there was all these people just trolling all the journos oh. being like, this is wrong, that's wrong, didn't want to say anything. And then this one man who follows me just tweeted me a simple, George Pell has two fake knees. <laughs> I did see it. I did. That was... And it is true. He does. He's really? had two knee reconstructions. It is very factual and correct. Wow. And it made me laugh. Just they amongst be... all the dickheads on my feed, there there it was, uh, just a gem of George Pell has two fake knees. And I retweeted it because, yes, he does. <laughs> that was one of your finest pieces of work, too, I loved on the twit pipe. Nice. Yes. All right, I'm going first, just pushing right to the front. Okay. 1930. Perth. Wow, way back. Yeah. Well, I keep reading Trove. You know the old newspapers. You love Trove. I'm still on my um, dead body books that oh, I bought from Kmart. such good stuff. And I keep finding things I didn't know about. Okay, 1930, Perth, Western Australia. Victor McCaskill was 30 years old. He had a farm about 14 miles from Bruce Rock in the heart of Western Australia's wheat belt. He lived there with his wife, Eva mm. Trina. She was 20 years old. Eva and, Trina. And... I don't think they're American. Oh, what and are they? they had an Australian. Oh. They had an eight-month-old baby called Robin. You do an Amer- You do an Australian accent better than I do. Australian. Because I, my my kid children That's the one. are from Australia. <laughs> yeah. We watched back a video of the Ava, kids when they were so little the talking name? and they were so Australian. I couldn't believe it. <gasps> my sister and I were really Australian back on like on videos. Dad, yeah. dad, <laughs> like, like that. That's like hillbilly. I don't know what we were. We just spoke. We spoke so weird. Strange. Yeah. 
as a little English girl. Daddy, daddy. Where are you? Can I have a pony, please? Oh, I was like, ma, you, <laughs> like screaming all the time. <laughs> I never did have a pony. Um, so the family, the McCaskills, had an 18-year-old farm worker who lived and worked with them. His name was Billy Halbert. Mm-hmm. On, Fish. I feel like I've named his, spelled his name wrong. Was he Halbert or Halbert? We'll go Fish. with Halbert for now. On the 30th of December, 1930, Victor McCaskill said that he had had enough of Halbert and told him to finish up what work he had to do and then leave the farm. Okay. And he said that Halbert answered back to him, Mm. you'll be sorry for this. Shit. You'll be sorry for this, mate. Murder is about to happen. Mm. Now, I don't want no one is to laugh. Because I'm going to tell you exactly, this was reported in the newspaper. Why did he sack him? Victor McCaskill told his neighbour that... I haven't even said it yet. Kirsty's closing her eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Because if you tell me I can't laugh, that's all I want to do. Victor McCaskill told his neighbour that Billy Halbert had developed a peculiar habit... (laughs) Say it, damn it. Of blowing his nose on the baby. <laughs> on the baby. What? Blowing his nose on the baby. What? I know. I had to read it. A few, at first, uh, there's two different Who's accounts. baby? One said that he developed a habit of their baby, the eight-month-old baby Robin. One account said that... Like he put his Vic- nose between, like at the back of his neck. I don't know what he was <laughs> That's doing. That's the only way I could it think about so it. so weird. Or in an elbow. So one report, no, that's modern to sneeze into your elbow. One report said that he, Victor was sick of Billy blowing his nose in the kitchen, but then the other one said blowing his nose on the baby, and it even came up in, in a court case later. Anyway, so he said he warned the boy about it and told them it told him it would cost him his job if he edit, ever did it again. I really want them to be healed, Billies. You stop blowing your nose on that baby. <laughs> What's his name? Billy. (laughs) Billy. Billy, stop blowing your nose. (laughs) Billy, baby, blow her. And Billy to tell you he's been dirty on the baby again. Billy's been baby. (laughs) That baby's got snot all over him. Who did this? Is that you, Billy? Get out of this kitchen. Billy, baby, blow his back. What is that all over the Frigidaire? Billy's been here. <laughs> all right. So Billy did it I'm again. Crying. He did it again and he was told to leave. So he's given Billy his warning. He's got, we're going to, this is going to be the long, can you please compose yourselves? Both of you. Who thinks? <laughs> on, on a baby. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. Babies are all pink and soft and they smell pretty. You don't play nose on them. They're not it's not right. It's not right. It's not right. My arms hurt. Okay. I need a tissue. I need you to compose yourselves before um oh, do you have one? Um oh. why do we have tissues in here? Like we're know. gonna cry or something. Oh. Um, all right. Now it's going to get ugly. <laughs> this story is going to... I can't, I can't, I can't have it. Because what... <laughs> She's gone. How do you think of that? I don't know. I don't 
know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to blow my nose on that, baby. How do you think of that? <laughs> All okay, right. I'm good. All we right, we need okay. to compose ourselves because it gets it gets pretty ugly. I actually have to blow my nose though. Okay, do it. Okay, hold on. I want a tissue. Not <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. you do to that baby again. <laughs> oh, Put that baby down. That's what I mean. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. There was a story, sorry, before we move on, in my very early days of radio, there was a story in America mm-hmm. where two babies had been swapped at birth at the hospital Just and they had both gone home with the wrong mothers and yeah. it was discovered down the track a little bit. I remember this story, yeah, and they didn't and want to swap back. Yes, they went to the mother and the, yeah. and she said, that's not my baby, that baby is ugly. <laughs> I'm thinking, it is your baby. It is your baby. It's ugly because it looks like you. Take the baby. Everything is just so much more. I don't know if I'm saying it's just better in a hillbilly accent. Everything. It is, isn't it? All right, let's go. And on the news tonight. You know, you could do anything in a hillbilly accent. It would be good. It's much more fun. I don't normally dabble in accents, but I've lost it tonight. All right. Okay. So Billy's been told, cut it out. (laughs) (laughs) I don't. I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Okay. McCaskill has gone off to do his day's work on the farm. Now, when he came home in the afternoon, he found his wife and baby dead. Oh. Yep. That escalated quickly, didn't Didn't it? Didn't it? And Halbert hanging from a beam on the front porch. So it looked very much as though Billy Halbert had killed Eva and the baby and then committed suicide. Now, Jack Ray was a Mm neighbour. He said he saw Victor McCaskill running through the paddock towards him carrying a small bundle. And when he got closer, Ray realised that it was the baby that he was carrying covered in blood. I wish you did your story second so that I didn't have to tell my serious story after this because I don't know if I can get over it. You'll be fine. Okay. So Jack Ray said that McCaskill collapsed and he kept crying, my poor child, my poor baby. And Jack Ray said to him, what's happened, Victor? And he replied, that man of mine has murdered my wife, killed my Mm. child and then hanged himself. And Ray, the neighbour, Jack Ray said, "Um, are you sure your wife is dead? And he said, yes, she is cut open. So they called the police and they turned up to the farm and very quickly they saw that things just didn't quite add up. Alfred George Pryor, who was delivering meat and mail in the district that that day, which I also thought was a rather odd combination. Meat and mail. <laughs> now at midday... He saw Victor McCaskill sewing wheat bags in a paddock and McCaskill apparently waved him away. So Pryor stopped back at the farm at about four o'clock and he went into the kitchen and he left the bread and the mail. Oh, he's also delivering bread as well as the meat and some mail on the table. He said he saw a man lying on the veranda. He said, I had a look at him and I could see that he was dead as he was blue in the face. Mm. And Pryor also said that he had noticed an axe on the table. Um, But he said... There was nothing around the neck of the man laying on the veranda, and nor did he see a rope hanging from the veranda. Oh, 
staged. And if there had have been a rope there, he would have seen it because yes. it was in clear view. Well, you know if the man was on the ground or hanging. Exactly. So Dr Malcolm Sylvester Bell arrived at about five with police and he saw Eva's dead body on the floor in the bedroom and the dead baby in a pool of blood beside the bed. Ugh. Outside the room was a blood-stained axe and on the veranda was Billy Halbert's dead body, which was covered by a tarpaulin. And it was underneath a beam. The skin on his face was described as being livid and blue mm. and a distinctly darker blue just above the level of a piece of rope which was drawn tightly around his neck. So this Dr. Bell did the post-mortem and he said putrefaction was advanced. Was this in summer? December the 30th, yeah, it's in summer. Putrefaction was advanced. There were no marks of blood on Halpert's body with the exception of a strangulation mark around the neck, apparently mm. made by a rope, as the mark was deeply embedded about a quarter of an inch into the flesh. There were no marks on the head, but a quantity of yellowish fluid flowing from the mouth. It's a bit too much detail, isn't it? Mm. Um, he said death was due to strangulation brought about by a rope or cord, but whether asphyxia, which is... Yeah, strangulation, loss of air. uh, Was caused by hanging or by the rope being drawn tightly around the neck, he could not say. Mm. Interestingly enough, Dr. Bell said that Billy Halpert had died 6 to 12 hours before Eva and the baby, which is very strange because if he supposedly killed them, how did he do that? And rigor mortis had already started setting in on his body but not on the others. And the rope mark around his neck was a complete circle, whereas you think about it, if you had hung yourself, the rope mark would only be on the front of the neck, wouldn't it? Uh, The rope was also long enough that if it had been around his neck, he could have stood on the veranda with six inches of slack rope. Oh. And the box that he was supposed to have stood on was too heavy for him to have kicked away. Right. There was no blood, as the coroner said or the doctor said, on his clothing, which was very odd for a man who had supposedly just killed two people with an axe. Yeah. Eva McCaskill had been hit in the face with the axe and she had a wound three inches deep extending from the right eye across the angle of the jaw to half an inch below the lower jaw. Mm -hmm. This was all in the papers at the time. Can you believe it? Her body was attacked after she had died. There was an axe wound on her back which cut through the spine below the shoulder. The baby's head, according to Dr. Bell, was pulped with blows from the axe. And on the right-hand side of the scalp, there were wounds in the shape of a letter V. There was a cut across the lower uh, jaw. The jaw was smashed, the bones, and the, hang on, and extended through to the spine. Either way, awful. Horrible. I'm going to mix that up, but you get the picture. Um, In between the bodies being found and McCaskill... Okay, so I can't tell you yet what what happens with McCaskill. So hang on. They found the bodies. I've just realised I've structured this badly. But so, okay, the bodies have been found. Dr. Bell examines Victor McCaskill Mm -hmm. uh, and he... McCaskill says to him, oh, you're Dr. Bell who examined myself and my wife for insurance a few months ago. And Dr. Bell said he noticed blood on the front of Victor McCaskill's trousers and shirt. And he also threw into the mix that he thought that McCaskill had been acting strangely in the past few weeks. Mm -hmm. He said his actions were those of an insane man. In other words, said the paper, he thought McCaskill was a madman. Yes. (laughs) 
So the next day after the murders, a neighbour was passing McCaskill's house and McCaskill was standing near where Billy Halpert's body had been found on the veranda. And the neighbour stopped and went over and put his arm around him to support him. And he said that Victor McCaskill cried and said, I want my mother, I want my mother. And McCaskill then drove off towards Bruce Rock, which is a town nearby. The police were keeping a close eye on him because they realised that everything's not quite right, as he his version of the stories. Um, they keep an eye on him. He went to the local hotel. Time went on and they noticed that he was getting more and more agitated. And finally, and I, perhaps he knew they were watching him, but he made a break for it, mm. jumped into his car and started speeding back towards the farm. The police chased him. Uh, they couldn't quite keep up with him. So McCaskill got to the farm first. A neighbour saw Victor McCaskill turn into the farm and go through the yard straight towards some haystacks. About three minutes later, there was a loud explosion and dust and smoke filled the air behind the haystacks. Ms. Caskell had put a stick of TNT in his mouth and oh, lit the fuse. Shit. So the neighbour rushed over and he found McCaskill's dead body minus the head, shoulders and arms. Yeah, that'd be right. Lying on the ground near the haystack. Good. The police turned up because they weren't that far behind. They collected the remains. They took them back to the town of Bruce Rock. Dr. Bell said the head and both arms were blown from the body and death was caused by a high explosive evidently placed in the mouth by the right hand, which was missing. Hmm. So he must have yeah. been holding, holding it in his it. right hand. Yeah, uh, He was unable to examine McCaskill's brain as it was blown to pieces. So why did all this happen? Probably money. M- uh, McCaskill had taken out a £2,000 life insurance policy on his wife a couple of months earlier, despite the fact she was described as a strong and healthy woman. He owed Billy Halbert a year's wages. So perhaps he thought that by killing him, he would get out of paying him. Mm. Um, It could be that Eva witnessed him killing McCaskill. So he decided to just make a clean sweep of the whole family. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was described by people as a peculiar man. He was quiet and morose. And lately he appeared to be brooding over something. Uh, The coroner recorded that McCaskill committed the murders while he was insane, Mm -hmm. but the cold, calculated way he set Halbert up, strangled him, and then waited several more hours before brutally slaying his own wife and child showed that the murders were anything but a spur-of-the-moment act of insanity. Um, On the night before McCaskill killed himself, he stayed with a neighbour, a guy called Thomas Blakel, uh, and he told Thomas Blakel that Billy Halbert claimed that he had been bumped by a cow. Don't. We can't lose it. And was making inquiries about workers' compensation. I personally was stunned that they had workers' comp back in Cows can actually really hurt people. Yeah. And apparently he hadn't kept up payments on his policy and so perhaps he was scared that he was going to have to pay out something for the cow bump. A heifer hit me! <laughs> <laughs> um... <laughs> Okay, Blakel asked um, McCaskill why he didn't try to revive Billy Halbert, and he'd said that because he had um, that if Billy Halbert, well, he was still going along with his story that Billy Halbert had hanged himself. That if he had come around, he would have had to kill him with an axe anyway. So no. either way, he's confessing to the murders, and um, I don't know how he died. Did I'm... I didn't include his sentence? Did I? So it's not over one blowing your. Okay. Oh no, he's dead. How many times sentenced. did you look up know, blowing your nose on a baby? That's terrible. <laughs> Being bumped by a, a 
heifer. Grandpa, I'll be bumped by that cow again. But how... Did multiple... I'm going through my bag while I'm doing this. I'm yeah, that's something. all right. Um, how many places said that? Said what? That he blew his nose on a baby. It was one of the newspapers, and I can't remember which one it was. I just can't get but over But it came that. up in the uh, court case. That, that was in, in part of... my whole story. Stories on the ground. Oh, um, that came up in the um I need my charger the hearing. out of my bag. That's what I need. Okay. Christ. My bag is like a Mary Poppins bag. You've like, got everything in there. It, there's my whole perfect in every way. My whole life, I can pull anything out of this bag at any time. Just a spoonful <sighs> of sugar makes the medicine go down. Medicine go down. Medicine go down. Oh, careful. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I think I'm good. Okay. Do you want to plug your charger in? There are no babies in this story. No babies were harmed in the making of this story. Mm -hmm. There are no babies. This is uh, the story of the Moors murders. Now, remember how we had that feedback from um, someone from Manchester? Yes. Yes. And then I saw this story which took place in Manchester and I thought, why not? Why not? So. Let's do it. Early 1960s and we are in Manchester. Mm-hmm. There we meet Ian Brady and Myra oh, Hindley. Oh, the Moors murders. Yes. These people are horrible. Yeah. So we'll start with Ian. He arrived in Manchester in late 1954 and he worked as a market porter. The only problem being he was always in trouble with the law. So he was jailed for theft during this time and behind bars it seems that Ian decided the only life for him would be a life of crime. Mm. Mm. So he decided to become a professional criminal. When he was released, though, he was looking for a sustainable criminal enterprise. And while looking for such an enterprise, he decided that he needed to keep making money legitimately. So he looked for a labouring position, but he couldn't find one. So he put some of his prison skills to work. While he was in uh, jail, he'd studied bookkeeping because mm, he thought it would come in handy with the criminal yeah. enterprise. Right, gotcha. Yes, so he took a job in bookkeeping with a company called Millwood's Merchandising. Mm. Mm. And within his first year, a lovely lady arrived and her name was Myra Hindley. She's such a hard-faced bitch. Have you yeah, you've well, seen her? Throughout her younger years, Myra was thought of as bright but not overly ambitious. Mm-hmm. Um, Ian took a liking to her, but she wasn't into him straight away. Right. He had to work on it. It took about a year, I believe, but then they finally became lovers. What she didn't know was that Ian was full of dark fantasies. He was into some creepy shit. So he would read books about um, sadomasochism, if I'm saying that right, which is basically sexual activity that involves humiliation and torture Mm -hmm. and all those things. Um, And he started believing that he was some kind of superhero, superman, was saying heaps of weird shit and Myra was right into it. Yuck. She was loving it. She totally transformed herself in the first months they were together. She dyed her hair blonde. She changed her makeup. She's a, it's a really bad blonde too. Yeah. It's really we'll bad. pictures up. Because she's heaps. still got black eyebrows. Yeah. You know that look Madonna went with? That was I know that look. dreadful look. Yeah. Shanghai <laughs> surprise or whatever it was. Correct. So she was trying to fit in with his fantasies. So she's totally bowing to all his needs. Mm. It was around this time Ian started thinking about a crime they could commit together.
together. And at first he wanted to rob a bank. So Myra joined a gun club and she bought a few guns, but then he changed his mind and decided he wanted to commit brutal and horrible murders. He told Myra he wanted to commit the most perfect murder and she, again, she was right Mm. into it. Mm. On the 12th of July, 1963, they decided they were going to make their move. So what they did was Myra got behind the wheel of a van and Ian jumped on his motorbike and they take off in convoy. And the deal between them was that once Ian had spotted a victim that he liked, he would flash his headlights and then Myra would pull over and attempt to get that person into the van. So the first time they did this, though, Myra didn't stop. Because when Ian flashed his headlights, she realised that she knew the girl. Oh, okay. Mm, so it was an eight-year-old girl, oh. and they, yeah. And Myra oh, realised she knew her. There was some sort of connection between her being a neighbour or something, and she just she didn't stop. So they keep going. Mm. The second time he flashes his headlights, it was when he saw a 16-year-old girl. Her name was Pauline Reed. Uh, She was on her way to a dance. Myra pulled over and offered her a lift. When they start driving, Myra asks uh, her if she would come and help look for a lost glove. Mm. No, thank you. In an area called the Saddleworth Moor. And the to give you an idea, and I kind of looked it up, the Saddleworth Moor is... It's in a national park, but it's very rocky. There's lots of ridges and Mm -hmm. things like that. So she agrees. Oh, yes, I'll come and help you look for this glove. Uh, And then when they get there, Ian turns up and he says he's going to join in the search. At this point, um, it's believed Myra stayed in the van and Ian took Pauline to the moor. He returned half an hour later. He was alone. He collected Myra and took her to where Pauline was uh, laying, dying. Her clothes were ripped and she was almost decapitated. (gasps) Myra asked him if he had raped her and he said, of course I did. They buried her in the moor and they took off. By November 11, they decided they were going to do it again. This time they went to a market town in Manchester called the Ashton Underlin. There they found 12-year-old John Kilbride or it would be Kilbride, Kilbride. They again offered him a lift telling him that his parents would be mad if they found out he was out so late Mm. and they also offered him a bottle of sherry and he accepted. When they got in the car, they said they needed to detour to buy the sherry. They then said they needed to detour again to find a lost glove in the moor. Again, Myra said she waited in the car while Ian sexually assaulted the boy and tried to slit his throat. He failed at that, though, so he strangled John to death with a shoelace. Seven months later, they abducted another boy. His name was Keith Bennett. He was 12 years old. He was taken from his home in... uh, he, from near his home in Manchester, he was raped and buried in the moor, as was the previous boy being John. So John and Keith were both buried in the moor. Mm. On Boxing Day of that same year, being 1964, the couple went to a fairground. It was there they saw a, a young girl walking around. Her name was Leslie Ann Downey. I feel like these names are so familiar, yeah. aren't they? You know, because... 
it's it's a case that comes up yeah. over the years. Yeah. She was 10 years old. Mm. They uh, kind of walked close to her and they pretended to drop some of the shopping that they had and she offered to help them carry it. They took Leslie to their house where they forced her to pose naked for pornographic photos mm. um, and they did that because Ian wanted to sell them to rich perverts. She was gagged, raped and strangled. I don't know why they did this, but for some reason they recorded it all, mm. recorded it all, uh, not video. They, with a tape recorder. With a tape recorder. Well, that would be, in those years, that would be an old reel-to-reel tape. Yeah. yeah. Now, it's just under a year on when they strike again. This time, Ian is angry, though, and he's angry because, you know how these fuckers love to brag about all the bad shit they do? Mm-hmm. Well, he had been bragging to Myra's brother-in-law um, about all their evil deeds, and we'll call him David. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to call him Dodgy Dave. So he's bragging to Dodgy Dave, and Dodgy Dave isn't believing him. Mm-hmm. I'm calling him Dodgy Dave because the reason why he's bragging to him is because he's not the best person in the world. Right, okay. So he's also a bit of a not Push a great guy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um he's got a criminal history and um anyway, so Ian's banging on about all this stuff he's doing and Dodgy Dave doesn't believe him. So Ian goes and kidnaps a 17-year-old boy and brings him back to the house. Once the boy was inside, he invited over Dodgy Dave and um Myra she must have waited outside for him or something like that. And he was only allowed to come in um, when Myra was given the signal from Ian. This is what Dodgy Dave told police. I waited about a minute or two. Then suddenly I heard a hell of a scream. It sounded like a woman, really high pitched. Then the screams carried on one after another, really loud. Then I heard Myra shout, Dave, help him. Mm. Why does no one else hear this? I don't know. Yeah. Mm. When I, um, he said, when I ran inside, I just stood inside the living room. I saw a young lad. He was lying with his head and shoulders on the couch and his legs were on the floor. He was facing upwards. Ian was standing over him, facing him with his legs on either side of the young lad's legs. Mm. The lad was still screaming. Ian had a hatchet in his hand. He was holding it above his head and he hit the lad on the left side of his head with the hatchet. I heard the blow it was terrible it was a terrible hard blow it sounded horrible dodgy dave watches the boy being strangled to death he's wrapped in a length of plastic and put in the spare room Hmm. now dodgy dave isn't into this but he still comes around the next morning to help ian get rid of the body and he didn't sound like he tried to stop him a whole lot either no and they get rid of the body in the moors dodgy dave goes home he asks his wife to make him a cup of tea and he vomits everywhere. Mm. So it's at this point that Dodgy Dave, you know, decides he's going to go to police. So um, he goes to police, but he's so scared and he's so worried that Ian might be watching him because now he's been like witness to all this, mm-hmm. he's been part of it. So he has to go to the phone booth to call police, but he arms himself with a screwdriver because mm-hmm. he's terrified that he's going to be ambushed by Ian. Anyway, he manages to call police and police come and pick him up. He tells them everything. Police go to the house uh, where they speak to Ian and they arrest him on suspicion of murder. Myra isn't arrested, but she insists on going to the police uh, station with him. She takes Mm. her dog. After some times uh, she leaves and is found burning evidence. 
Mm-hmm. Um, she was burning some sort of paperwork that had to do with the bank robbery they were going to commit. Anyway, so she is also arrested when they find her doing that. Police searched the house. They found a a school exercise book belonging to John Kilbride. When they questioned Ian, he said um, that he and Dodgy Dave had committed the murder and that Myra was only doing what she was told. Now, that audio recording, Mm. that brought them undone because it was found by police. Wow. And... That audio recording had to be played to that victim's mother so that she could confirm that it was her daughter. They found several photographs of victims and of the more just landscape photos. Would they do that these days, do you think? I don't think so. No, it's too traumatic. And would you have to listen to the whole thing or could you no, hear just enough to be like, look, I that's know her. for a fact, and I don't know if this happens in Australia. I know there are cops that listen to this. They could probably clarify. But I know now, especially in child like porn rings and terrible videos of children being abused, cops are only allowed to either watch it without sound or listen to it without vision. Okay. They can't do both. Yeah. It's too horrific. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway, so in many of the photos of the moor they found, Myra's dog called Puppet was in them. So in order, I thought this was really smart, in order to work out when those photos were taken, they had a vet examine the dog in real life yeah. and compare it to the dog in the photos oh, so, so they, they could, could work, work out, out the age. So they could work out how, how many Timeline. years they thought the dog had aged. Isn't that clever? To work out when the photos were taken. There was just one problem with this situation and that was when they put the dog to sleep so they could examine the dog, the dog didn't wake up. Oh, oops. Mm. So Myra accused the police of murdering her dog. Um, they say it was the first time they saw her show any kind of emotion. She wrote to her mum about the dog and she said, I feel as though my heart's been torn into pieces. I don't think anything could hurt me more than this has. The only consolation is that some moron might have got a hold of Puppet and hurt him. So she's thinking she's in jail. Someone could have hurt my dog anyway. So at least now my dog's dead. And it's also interesting because a lot of murderers often start out hurting animals Mm. and have no sympathy for animals. So the fact that she can feel love for an animal. Yeah. I do know there are some people over the years who have felt a little sympathetics, maybe too strong a word, but a bit on her side. So there was a 14-day trial and actually why people felt sympathetic to her may, it'll come up. You'll see the points where I can understand why people would have thought that. There was a 14-day trial. The court had to be especially fitted with security screens to protect Ian and Myra from the public. Uh, They were charged with three out of the five murders, um, being John Kilbride's murder, Leslie Ann Downey and Edward Evans' murder. Dodgy Dave was the star witness. Um, Before the trial even began, he was getting offers from all kinds of media outlets to sell his story from £1,000 to £6,000. Gosh, that's a lot. It's a lot of money. Mm. When the trial began, both Ian and Myra pleaded not guilty. They both gave evidence at the trial for hours. The 16-minute tape of Leslie was played in court and Ian and Myra could both be heard on it. The jury found them both guilty and they were sentenced to life behind bars. In 1985, Ian told a journalist that he had murdered Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett. Mm-hmm. They're the outstanding two, uh, which police had suspected of, that they were involved in. So they reopened the case. Uh, 
They went and visited Ian and he was scornful about the whole thing, said he never confessed to anything, didn't want to have a bar of it. Did they have oh, I hope someone had him on tape, probably didn't. No, they didn't. Damn. So he didn't want a bar of it, he said he never confessed to it. Um, but then Keith Bennett's mother wrote to Myra, mm. begging her to reveal what had happened to her son. Yes. Myra seemed to be extremely moved by the letter. And I think, I haven't put this in my story, but later on she had said to her, um, to Keith Bennett's mother, you know, had you written to me earlier, I would have told you the truth. Police went and visited Myra a few days after she got the letter. She denied all involvement, but she said she would look at photos and maps to try and help police work out where the body was because she's always maintained that, she was made to do it. Yeah, and yeah. she was in the van. She yeah. wasn't part of it. So um, she did look at photos and maps, but she said to police it was just it was too hard for her to kind of get her bearings. Mm-hmm. So police agreed to take her to the mall. But security was a really big issue, and it wasn't an issue because they were worried she was going to run away. They were worried that someone from the public was going to kill gonna her. her. Yeah, They used 200 police officers to secure the area when they took her down there and they had to do that twice. They didn't find anything, but police kept visiting her. And on uh, February 10, 1987, she admitted involvement in all five murders. Her confession tape ran for 17 hours. Good heavens. Police, however, said they felt they'd witnessed a great performance rather than a true confession. Oh. And that was because Myra, when she was telling her version of events, like I said before, she was always conveniently not there when the murdering happened. Um, she was in the car or in another room. Mm. Once they had her confession, though, they went back to Ian to tell him, well, she's bloody mm. spilled the beans on everything. He didn't believe it. He didn't believe that she had said all this stuff. Oh, but then, really? Yes. They started telling him details that he couldn't deny and that he could have only found out from Myra. And just before I start to feel sorry for her and mm. that she might have been, you know, terrified of him or whatever, but she could have gone to cops. It's like you've totally. said yeah. in other stories, you know. Yeah, totally. Just say, I've got, got to go and get milk. Yeah. Yeah. So he says, okay, cool, I'll tell you the truth if you let me commit suicide. Oh. Mm. They didn't let him do that. Right. Mm. They continue to talk You're to Myra. You're not Epstein. Who do you think you are, mate? I know. So they continue to talk to Myra about where the bodies were buried in the moor and she helped them as much as she could. After 100 days of searching, they found Pauline's body. The Office of Public Prosecutions decided they weren't going to pursue either Ian or Myra on those outstanding murder charges because Mm. they were already serving life behind bars, which I think is the wrong thing to do Mm. because those families want justice. I I just feel like they should have done that. Um, In 2003, another search was uh, conducted looking for Keith Bennett's body. That's the one whose mother was writing to Myra. He, um, they looked for him. They still, they couldn't find him. They used all sorts of modern technology, satellites that detect soil disturbances, Mm. but the search failed. In 2009, the search was officially closed, but public donations allowed private searches to continue, but his body was never found. It's like 40 or 50 years now, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. it's terrible. Um, No, 50. Myra later said, I ought to have been hanged. I deserved it. My crime was worse than Ian's because I enticed the children and they would never have entered the car without my role. I've always regarded myself as worse than Ian. Hmm. It's fair. It is. She's the one that got them. Like She played Mm -hmm. that feminine role that children trusted. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is 
terrible. Um, Ian died of restrictive pulmonary disease on the 15th of May 2017. Mm. Brady, uh, Ian Brady was cremated without ceremony. His ashes were disposed of at sea during the night. Right, okay. On the 15th of November 2002, Myra died from bronchial pneumonia. Uh, she was a 40-day smoker. Oh, yeah. 40 cigarettes. How do you say it? 40, 40 a day smoker. A day. Yeah. yeah. Um, in 1999, she was diagnosed with angina and hospitalised and she suffered a brain aneurysm. Um, camera crews... When she died, they stood like waiting outside the jail to see who was going to go and see her, and only a couple of people went. Such was the hatred for her mm. that you know she died thirty-five years after those murders. Twenty local undertakers refused to handle her cremation. Gosh, four months later—that's how long it took to get and make it happen. Her ashes were scattered by her ex-partner, less than. 10 miles or 16 kilometres from the moor. Oh. Mm. The I end. I feel like she should have been sent out to sea as well. Yeah. yeah. They were worried that people weren't going to go to the moor because it's actually quite beautiful. Yeah. They were worried it would impact on uh, tourism, but that's oh, what happened. Yeah. Mm. But they needed to be somewhere where people wouldn't you know, make it into some weird shrine. Yeah, or, correct. Mm. Quick feedback? Yep. Uh, from Anne-Marie, hi, gorgeous Dee Dee and Chanel. Well, we're not, but thank you. Well, she is, but I'm not. But oh. that's uh, Thank you, Anne-Marie. We are. Yep. Out of the blue the other day, I recalled a dead body we happened upon whilst holidaying in, oh, no, Kaolak? Ka- who's? Ooh. We're in Thailand. Anyone? Mm. Someone? Someone? Sure. Someone? I don't Thailand. know. We visited a local temple and in one of the raised pagodas came across a glass coffin that contained a mummified monk. We were quite shocked, but our taxi driver slash tour guide said that a lot of temples around Thailand feature similar mummies. He looked very dark and shriveled up and his teeth protruded out of his shrunken face. Mm. Our young children weren't very interested, but my husband and I found it fascinating. And Amory has sent us some photos of their one. Oh. And she also sent us some information on another mummified monk. This is the monk Lung Pudding who's kept on display, surrounded by flowers, candles, incense, etc. For Thai people, the body of the monk is there to be worshipped and his death is seen as an opportunity to be reborn into a better, uh, better life. So this particular monk was born in 1894. When he was around 20, he was ordained as a monk. He married, started a family. When he was 50, he returned to the temple, dedicated the rest of his life to Buddhism. And at the age of 79, this long pudding told his followers that when he died, if his body decayed, it should be cremated. But if his body didn't decompose, it should be kept in a glass casket mm, to inspire weird. future generations to follow the teachings of Buddha. I've got a picture I'm going to show you in a second. He stopped eating, drinking and speaking for a week and then he died. And usually a body would decompose very quickly in the hot and humid climate of Kosamui. But his body is remarkably well kept and some say it's a miracle. Others say it's because he didn't eat and mm, do yeah. all that before he died that somehow there wasn't enough oxygen and so he didn't. Anyway, the eyeballs have dried out, so the mummified body is now wearing sunglasses. And we will put that picture for you to enjoy of a mummy wearing sunglasses, dried up body. Terrible. Very creepy. Still got its robes on, no need. Uh, On our social media. Cool.
I've got one from Diane. She told us about the tri-state crematory story. Uh, She's got another doozy for us. She says this happened in Moscow. 63-year-old Oleg Sokolov got drunk and was planning to take his own life by throwing himself into the Moika River at St. Petersburg, Peter. What? Why did you give me this one? There's so many difficult things. By throwing himself into the Moika River at St. Petersburg, Peter and Paul Fortress. Right. Got there in the end. Right. But he didn't drown. Oh. He was pulled out of the water wearing a full Napoleonic Napoleonic costume. He was carrying a backpack containing a woman's severed arms. What? What? This was in the news not that long ago. Sokolov is now facing a murder charge. He is an assistant professor of history and enjoys reenacting these war scenes. He dresses like Napoleon. Pretending to be Napoleon. If ever I'm watching like a historical program and then the ye olde reenactors come out of costumes, it's like, fuck off with your stupid... You know, it's a thing. Well, the arms in the backpack are thought to be those of one of his students, 24-year-old Anastasia Yashenko. Her dismembered and decapitated body was found in his apartment just a few houses down from where he was hauled out of the water. He claims that Yashenko had attacked him with a knife after they argued about his daughters, so he shot her four times, then he entertained guests while her body lay in the next room. Oh. I'm panicked about if I have a messy room in my house and people come over. How do you just casually have a bod? I don't know. Anyway, after they left, he decided to dismember and dispose of the remains. He told police that the task made him physically ill and he drank heavily so he could keep going. He was planning to kill himself by jumping into the moika in front of tourists, but the river was... It was shallow. Oh, dear. Yeah, you could stand in it. Oh, no. <laughs> so this is where like life just gets me. You're a professor, but you're a fucking idiot as well. Yes. You're good at really, really, yeah. really good at some things. There's but book learning in this yeah, street smarts. Anyway, yeah. A passing dra- taxi driver is the one who um, heard him screaming. And, in the water. Yeah. Waist deep in the water with his And rang the police. And he's Napoleon costume. What an absolute fucking idiot. Well... If you've ever seen a dead body or body parts, here comes the lovely Tony oh, Taddeo. I have a story. Oh, what? oh, oh God, goodness gracious. Me. What the hell? Good. You just remembered. Oh, sorry. We're not wrapping up. We're not leaving. <laughs> We're not leaving. We're not leaving. So I was at the coroner's court. Send me real quick. Um, I was at the coroner's court uh, covering an inquest and I saw two police officers walking in holding an esky. Oh, oh what? Yeah. What was in it? I don't know. What could body part? It's, sure. Sure it's, it's Christmas party time. Ponder surely. that until the next episode. Roll, Tony. <laughs> Dead Bodies is created by D.D. Dunleavy and Chanel Vella and produced by Kirsten Lim Howe. Contact us at deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com.